Welcome to Ask AI, the podcast that brings you insightful interviews and news from the world of Canadian artificial intelligence. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft Canada. Microsoft is committed to building trusted and responsible AI systems. To learn more, go to microsoft.com AI and check out their free AI business school to start building intelligence into your solutions today. We're also sponsored by Cinchi, the global leader in data fabric technology. Visit Cinchi.com to learn how to eliminate integration and turbocharge your AI transformation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Ask AI podcast. My name is Jackson Kahn, and I'm your host today. Just so you know, if, if you've got some news to share, we're actually launching a Canadian AI bulletin. So if you have news to share about your startup, project, your organization, or even an online event, or even an opportunity that you'd like to share with our community, please visit askai.org update. We'll add your news to the bulletin, which is distributed regularly via our website, social pages, chatbot, and email newsletter. Lots of channels there. Today, we are so excited to have Ashley Casavan on our podcast. She is a remarkable individual, a Canadian who is now running a international nonprofit organization called AI Global. They are focused on putting research into action by creating tangible tools that help accelerate the design, the development, and the use of responsible AI. And we're going to learn more about responsible AI today from her on the podcast. Prior to AI Global, she was the Director of Data Architecture and Innovation at the Government of Canada, and she also was their Open Government Portal Lead. She's also an advisor with the AI Public Awareness Group with the Government of Canada and an expert with the OECD's AI Initiative. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. And Ashley, you've got such an impressive background. And, and just for our listeners, would love to just learn a bit more about you first and, and sort of how you got into working in AI in general. Sure. Well, thank you. And it's really great to see how the Canadian community is doing podcasts and initiatives like this. I think that's really where my story starts is I was really more interested in government accountability. And so my whole story starts from there. So up until this recent venture into the nonprofit world, I have been a public servant and I really started from this perspective of political science and economics. And I worked on campaigns prior to entering government, but still again, kind of in that, that remit of being interested in, in the public and the impacts that different policy decisions have on them. Coming from Alberta, it was really interesting to me to see how policy decisions that were made had such a long-term implication. And we're seeing some of the implications of those decisions now with the current state of affairs in Alberta. And what's really interesting to me is how I was able to learn early on, or I guess it was really fortunate in some of the campaign work that I had done to learn about the power of data and how important data-driven decisions were for having a real clear understanding of the outcomes that you wanted to achieve. And that stayed with me through all of my work. And so it seems like I've kind of advanced from political science into data architecture and now into AI, which doesn't seem like a super linear path, but for me it is because with that kind of mission in mind of government accountability or oversight or just government existing as a, an important service for the public, I've recognized that having the right tools in place will enable those outcomes. And then I learned after, as you mentioned, I was involved in the Open Government Initiative 
for the government of Canada. Prior to that, I was actually at the city of Edmonton, where we were really looking at not only how to build an open data portal, it was the fourth of its kind in Canada, but also looking at other types of innovative technologies. Like we were the first city to bring Google Mail and Calendar and the cultural disruption that occurred as a result of that was pretty shocking to me as I was like an early user of Gmail, but just seeing people's very, very real concerns with this was, I think, a really important lesson early on. And so through that, I kind of got into progressively more technical roles. And after working on Canada's open government portal, realized that if we have these goals and missions in mind, we're not able to actually affect the change that we want beyond kind of a surface level, unless we look at the deep policy choices. And that has really driven my my interest in not only looking at it from policy and governance, from how do you write actual policies, but to also how do you implement those. And so one of the things that we did in the government of Canada was we developed this directive on automated decision-making systems at recognizing that the government was starting to use artificial intelligence systems. And we wanted to ensure that that was being done in a way that was trusted by people and that was safe. And also it, it protected the government itself in terms of how it was provisioning these services. What was really important in that policy was that we were then able to think about how we're balancing innovation and protection of the public all in one kind of, well, attempt at a one fallow swoop. At the same time, though, it was one of the most significant times that I realized that if you have a policy that's not able to be implemented in a particular, like you don't have all of the answers in terms of what good or acceptable looks like, then the policy is not that important or that significant. And so the work that I've set out to do with AI Global is to really try and fill those, or at least try and address as part of a small part of a very big ecosystem, some of these gaps that exist. So for example, if we say things like, we want to ensure that there's oversight of these systems, what does effective oversight look like? So That really is why I'm kind of interested in this coming from a background of political science and economics, how all of those pieces fit together and how I've kind of ended up in a, the nonprofit sector trying to help inform public policy overall. I think it's so fascinating, Ashley. And you know what? I do think that the nonlinearity is is great. (laughs) I think that uh, we need it and we actually need more folks who who sort of take those cross-sector jumps and, and sort of blur the lines from time to time. Because I think, as you mentioned, there are gaps. And taking, I think, a very intentional initiative to solving and, and kind of figuring out what are the connective tissue pieces that we need to, to really pull this ecosystem together. And, and I think that relates so much to some of the other work that it seems to you're doing in, in public awareness uh, and building trust. And that's a really essential part of, uh, I think, you know, giving the public confidence in in all of this. And so I'm personally very glad that that you're involved in in leading this initiative. Thanks so much. Yeah, it is super, super important. One of the things that we saw when we were building the Directive on Automated Decision-Making Systems is that Ipsos had come up with a poll for the Canadian context in 2018, early in 2018. And it was interesting to see how limited public trust there was in the use of these systems. 
And actually very recently, there was a survey that was done for the work that we're doing on Canada's AI Advisory Council, the Public Awareness Working Group. And I just got a chance to see the results last week. They're going to be culminated into a broader report that we do with public deliberations. So it's not public yet. But what was interesting to me to see is that even in two years, there's been greater awareness of these systems. And I think it's really encouraging to understand or to recognize that with greater awareness, there is then going to be more questions and the need for the people that are implementing these systems, including government, to have a better understanding of how they work and the potential impact that they have unintended or intended. And these are the types of things that lead to a particular amount of trust in society. And we're seeing this with the A-levels in the UK, which was interesting. And I mean, I know also that there wasn't actually machine learning components in it, but still, depending on what definition of AI you ascribe to, it fits within that context. So I'll provide it as an example, but these were exams that were provided and then automatically evaluated. And there were a bigger differential in exam results in public schools versus private schools and adversely impacted students that were expecting to not only be admitted to the college of their choice, but also in many circumstances, having necessary funding for them to go to university. And these are the types of things that we think okay, well, this is just like a way that we're making it easier on our public servants. And in many cases, that's really, really important that we're able to to leverage these systems. But without those appropriate checks and balances in place, that could be a real important individual decision or implication for someone. And so it is of the utmost important to really understand what are these different implications Why are they being trusted or not being trusted by the public? And what types of measures can be put in place or what types of guardrails can be put in place so that people aren't being impacted? And if they are, there's some sort of recourse for that. So these are the different types of things that we're we're trying to look at and ensure are in place when those systems are being used. Wow, so many different important considerations. And and I suppose one thing that I'm, I'm particularly eager to to dive into before we sort of even talk more broadly about responsible AI and, and some of the pieces there is from your knowledge and your recent experience, like how is government thinking about AI in general right now? <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned earlier <laughs> that the work that I'm doing, I sit on OECD's AI network of experts for the AI observatory work that they have, policy observatory work that they have. And It's really interesting. They've done a great survey of national level policies, and you can check it out on their website, OECD AI Policy Observatory. And they've even done a really great visual of a map that demonstrates what some of the key areas are. And in our efforts right now, we're actually taking some of that work and trying to do analysis on what commonalities are existing in these strategies and what are the different areas that government's focused on. And so it's it's very, very preliminary, but we're seeing lots of use of AI in transportation systems, for example, or in a lot of back office work 
but there's aspirations for it to be used in a variety of different domains. And as I was mentioning before, I actually think that this is super, super important. One of the things that concerns me though, is that there's actually a ton of use of AI that we're probably not even aware of because the public servants that are using it are not aware of because it's getting bundled into technology services and companies are coming and saying like, oh, we can do all of these things for you. And and I think that's great. I am a proponent of innovation and of new technologies, but I do think that there has to be either more capacity for the governments that are implementing these systems to be able to really understand what's under the hood or there needs to be more transparency in how these companies are approaching these governments and really being upfront about what the potential implications are. And maybe they've done a lot of great work to ensure that there's appropriate oversights in place. But as of right now, we don't have a ton of policies that require that. And so that's really the onus is now on the companies to do this. And Without that kind of, again, kind of oversight in place, then that leads to a lack of accountability and consistency in the potential for that to be implicated in all circumstances, let's just say. That's the thing that I have the biggest concern about. So I think it's being used in a lot of places, many, many, many places for good. However, it's unknown, which is part of the big problem here. It seems like we're seeing so many different approaches too. And I, I think sort of the the depiction of there are some companies who are effectively having to become their own regulators, sort of in lieu of active regulation being imposed on them. You know, you see like the variance in sort of the privacy approach between, let's say, an Apple, which generally takes a pretty strong position and, and sets some controls around privacy to, to maybe a Facebook or a Google, where data gathering is, is far more prevalent in some of their services. And, you know, I, as far as I can tell, I don't think they're dictating that based on any real government policy, at least in like a, you know, incredibly meaningful way. And, and then the largest shifts seem to come in in force due to public opinion, or, or maybe, in a, you know, a ratcheting up due to some competitive pressure, but rather than maybe a, a government push. I guess I wonder about one thing, which is, you know, in, 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 I think last week there was a landmark lawsuit that was filed. I think it was 48 states, their attorney generals and the U.S. federal government in terms of the Federal Trade Commission. And they filed a massive lawsuit against Facebook. And I understand the premise there is, I believe it's it's anti-competitive practices, but I wonder, and, and maybe, or maybe it leads into something like this, but, you know, it effectively also concerns the way they gather data in general. And whether you're allowed to do that between you know, multiple different services or, you know, they have to be somewhat compartmentalized or contained and, and whether that's maybe something that government's going to touch. Like that's that's something that I'm particularly interested in right now. And and wondering maybe if you've heard of or had some of those conversations in government is like, what is what is the first point in which government is going to start to actually kind of tackle this? Like, is it going to be suing some of these companies? Is it going to be passing a policy first? Like, well, what is the what is the first big step there? Yeah, so many good questions uh, and comments within that. First, to start with, I just like want to go back before we get into this really, really interesting work that the states have done on antitrust and Facebook is the point that you made on companies providing their own oversight I think that that is the issue. I don't think that there's enough checks and balances in place. And it's not just in tech companies that we're seeing this. The the implications of 
not having those oversights. We just saw this with Boeing as an example. So if you are both the creator of the rules and the overseer of the rules, you are going to, at some point in time, have some pressures in place that no longer make you independent enough or create enough independence that you are able to, in a very clear way, implement those rules. And I think that these are the challenges that we are seeing right now. And again, it's not just tech companies. There's a whole reason why government's in place. And this is why I started with my whole like monologue at the beginning of where I come from, because I've been reflecting on this a lot lately. People think often like, oh, you're, you're kind of all over the place. And I'm like, well, actually, no, it's been really consistent. Like I, I think public policy is super, super important. And where there's, and we'll probably come to this, like where there's gaps in public policy or based on some of the transnational stuff that we touched on a little bit earlier, there's a need for probably private governance. Either way though, that's still the need for this like independent authoritativeness that is not self-regulation of these companies because that just does not work. So that's first and foremost, I think. That said, now going into what we're seeing with the states, Facebook's a perfect example of this. All along, they've been telling this story about how they have all of these oversight mechanisms in place. They set up this new committee with incredibly impressive people on it. And I mean, it, it's just kind of started. So maybe something like that could maybe work. At the same time, though, when it's too integrated into your business making decisions, you really are going to have a different look at what those trade-offs are. And I think that I don't want to confuse oversight with then what's happening with this antitrust and the breaking up of said companies or the potential need to break them up. But I do think that it all comes to this conversation around how should these tech companies be regulated? And I am not an expert in that at all. So I don't want to pontificate on that too much. I do think the one thing that I want to comment on though, is that I think there's been a shift in not only public sentiment on this, but public awareness as well. And recognizing that like maybe the tech companies don't necessarily have individuals' best interests in mind. It's not to say that they don't. It's just to say that, again, the current incentive structures that we have in place, like cost drivers and reputation, et cetera, are probably at the forefront of these types of decisions in a company, whereas there's different incentive structures and different oversight that's built into country's constitution or a country's promise to the public because of the electoral system. So there's inherently just different systems that exist. And so one of the challenges that we had constantly in government was wondering why people would be more willing to give their data to a company than to a country. And it's not that countries are, and Canada is no different, are not always on the right side of history and in many circumstances have not been. At the same time though, even if we were one for one trying to take the same tactics using the same types of technology, there's still a lack of trust in, in government where there wasn't in companies. And that's one of the things that I find super interesting now to see that shift happening because there's more awareness because of these landmark cases like these 46 states 
banding together. And I, I saw something on like that Trevor Noah had said, and it was like when California and Missouri agree on the same thing, you know, there's a problem. (laughs) So I just like, I think that this is the fact that it's entered into somewhat of a public dialogue. Uh, Like maybe I still live in my nerd bubble world where like, I think it's everywhere, but yeah, I think that shift is happening in that super, super encouraging to me. I think when the nerd bubble world aligns with, (laughs) you know, just, it seems like the persistent campaigns to like hashtag delete Facebook and, you know, even just generally, generationally, uh, people switching on mass and and it's kind of no longer being engaged in that, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I also think like maybe there is a strong push from kind of the academic to kind of corporate research angle. Like I know just in the last week as well, like another big development was, I believe her name is Timnit Gebru. Um, I'd have to double check, but she was a prominent AI ethics researcher who was fired for seemingly <laughs> seemingly uh, nefarious reasons from Google. And now there's kind of a mea culpa coming from from their side. And, you know, sounds like kind of both a, a whistleblower as well as, you know, like maybe a canary in the coal mine of like, you know, there there is so much privately produced research happening, but there are perhaps far stronger guardrails or, or even no-go zones that are actually in practice there. And, and I kind of actually wonder personally, and I'm curious what, what that research actually pertained to and kind of what light perhaps Google was, was worried about that, that coming into. But it is honestly really crazy in a way that this is playing out in message boards and sometimes private mailing lists within companies. And I know Google has that as well. Kind of there there have been a number of different employee discussions there. And, you know, it's it's happening kind of there on the corporate research side. And kind of that's where the advances are happening. That's where the regulation seems to be happening. And then we find out later on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm wondering and maybe a follow-up is like, how do governments get ahead of this? Because they're already way behind and, and how can they really collaborate? And and maybe you're already kind of seeing that in the, at the some of the forefront of your work and in the OECD and, and more. Yeah. I had the fortune of being on a panel with Timnit on Saturday, actually, at NeurIPS. Oh, wow. Amazing. It's interesting to not only see this play out, but hear this dialogue that's being not only shared by her, but by others as a result of that. So one, I think that whistleblower protection is uh, something that I hadn't thought of prior to this. Others had, but how we integrate that into these oversight mechanisms, it's unfortunate that these types of events need to occur for there to be greater awareness, even when you're a person that's kind of thinking about this all the time and you're reading all of the research. That was not something that I had seen really previously. And again, it it exists in lots of industries. So I'm not saying like this is the first time, but often one of the things that we're trying to think about is how do we take existing types of practices and integrate them in? And and that was a miss on my end. At the same time, it's difficult. Like it's not for everything that I just said earlier, I think that there can't be Timnit's example is an exact reason why there needs to be these checks and balances between public governance and the private sector or the companies that are producing these things. That said, I I think it's hard because there are a lot of circumstances where these companies are trying to do the right thing and they rightly so have said that government doesn't have the appropriate mechanisms in place 
and the knowledge and capacity to have that appropriate oversight. So the challenge that I kind of find myself in continually is that I know that both of these things are true because I I have kind of sat on that side. At the same time, though, I don't think that's a good enough excuse to say that there shouldn't be oversight. Like, I think if these companies truly wanted to help make a good path forward for their constituents, aka their clients, then I think that they should be lending their knowledge or expertise to help to build those. And so we're starting to see that with some companies like OpenAI and others who are getting involved in the development of these processes, whether it be through OECD or or work like we're doing, how this plays out and whether or not it's going to be the work that the UN does or OECD does or the World Economic Forum or non-international organizations, like it happens at the municipal level. New York City, for example, is just in the process of passing up some sort of governance on automated hiring systems and Chicago's done it already. And so the fact that like these cities are recognizing this in the same way that they have with facial recognition systems, I think that's where this starts. And it has to be all of those things, not just one of them. And that's why I said earlier, the work that we're doing is important and it's hard, but it's also just like one tiny piece of this bigger ecosystem that's going to have to create the change that we need to to see. And we're starting to see some of these fissures with whether it's the these states that are doing this legal action or whether it is individual whistleblowers like Timnit or whether it is just dialogues that are going on internal to government. These are all the little pieces that need to kind of help make these shifts. And that awareness and greater awareness is going to help us get there. I, I sure hope so. <laughs> I have optimism. I have faith. I, I guess one piece that I, I've been particularly fascinated by recently is, um, you know, there's so many conversations happening at like what I would call the high level, the strategic level. I mean, I, I know, you know, we chatted quickly before we hopped on the podcast, but even, even sort of that call last week and, you know, lots of interested folks around the world working on, you know, responsible AI. What, what I wonder is, is particularly on the public awareness side and, and sort of even bringing it down to the local level, the city level, as, as you were, as you were saying is, is, is where does that conversation really start? I feel like we had flurries of it throughout, for example, even take Toronto's smart city project or, or kind of now on hold project with Sidewalk Labs, which was kind of a dashed hope. And, and now maybe, you know, let's see if the city ultimately does anything now that that proposal is off the table. But I'm really interested to see, you know, how the public responded in that instance, where, you know, probably one of the most prominent examples in North America, where like there was a big, big smart city push, and maybe there, there was just some severe fallouts in trust among community leaders and, and some of the planners. And I'm wondering, maybe maybe either in part of your work or in some of the conversations that you've seen or been a part of, of like, what's happening in terms of bridging those conversations between between the international and the local or the national and the local? And maybe are there already any lessons learned or maybe a couple top like best practices or, or things that we should note in, in terms of the progression of that conversation? <laughs> Again, so many points. First and foremost, Wednesday's conversation, for those of you that don't know, was that I launched along with partners at Trust Reedsman Institute at the University of Toronto and the World Economic Forum, a certification working group for the responsible use of AI systems. And so this is building off of some of the work that we've been doing and was mentioned at the beginning, but really we're trying to focus on 
taking these big principles and concepts around calls for AI oversight and really figure out what does that mean and put them into practice. The way that I see that happening is through a private governance function. And in the worst case scenario, it is like a band-aid solution for regulation that will come. And in best case scenario, it's a bridge into defining what good regulation looks like that will occur, whether it's at the local level or at a national or international level. And that's part of figuring all of this out. And so we launched it last week and the discussion was rapid. (laughs) The chat was ridiculous, which was really, really interesting for me to see. At the same time, again, I kind of question, is this interest within the little nerd bubble or is it really beyond that there's kind of a greater understanding that there needs to be reform? And based on what we've talked about previously, I am optimistic and think that there is kind of a capacity and an interest for that. And that's also kind of what we're seeing in the results, preliminary results of the survey that I mentioned earlier. So all this to say is that I do think that there is a lot of meaningful work that is taking place or starting to take place like this certification work that we're doing to quote unquote, put principles into practice. But there's also a lot of great work that's happening, as I was mentioning, at the local level with both municipal government and state governments, primarily in the U.S. right now, recognizing the need to even temporarily ban the use of some instances of AI systems or automated decision systems because they don't know enough about them or there is a public outcry or they've seen how they are harming people. At the same time, I say temporary because I do think that there's still a lot of gaps and this is where the principal development and the research that goes behind that can't stop. These things need to be happening in parallel so that it can continue to inform the practice. And that's kind of the interesting dynamics that I'm seeing right now. And you ask between what happens at a local level and and how's that impacting or influencing or being informed by what's happening at national or international levels. And I see them kind of all working together right now. The people, at least that I've had the opportunity to work with, like, for example, yesterday, I was talking to New York State, the Comptroller General's office. I asked them actually about this New York City legislation, which is why it's top of my mind. And they have a great relationship with the city and they also have a great relationship with other states. And I feel like everybody's so thirsty for knowledge right now on this that they're just trying to figure out, okay, we're kind of all in this boat together. So what is it that we can learn from one another so that we can have the appropriate oversight? And we'll figure out based on jurisdiction what each of us can do, but there's this willingness to learn and to understand the implications of these technologies and whether or not that ends up being supported by international law or whether that ends up being supported by a federal law, even like what we're seeing back to this antitrust case against Facebook, it's the 46 states plus the U.S. government. So it's super, super interesting to see how this technology oversight is not following typical ways in which you would think legislation would occur. And again, that's given that nature of how 
these technologies are not limited to just like, okay, well, we operate in the state of Alabama like that, or we operate in the city <laughs> of Toronto. That doesn't work. And actually, EU GDPR, for as much attention as it gets, I don't think that many people talk about the fact that it was such a watershed policy in that it had oversight over European citizens or the scope of it is a European citizen independent of where they're physically located, which is fascinating. And that really made all other countries and jurisdictions or the companies that operate, sorry, with for European citizens change and update their policies to comply with EU GDPR. And so that then became the gold standard. And we're seeing this with Bill C-11. It's really not that different than EU GDPR. So sorry, just the last part, some of these new policies being proposed are not dissimilar to um, GDPR? No, very similar objectives. Yeah. They are very, very similar. Yeah. And and that's in the North American context that you're speaking to. Yeah, apologies. Bill C-11 is the new Privacy Act that is being proposed. It's in its first reading for the government of Canada. Very, very cool. I think this is, I, I thought I had heard a, sort of a, a couple different small pieces of news about that, but I didn't realize that it was quite that ambitious. That's that's remarkable. And did, did you have a role in putting that together before you were sort of leaving government or, or shaping some of the foundations of that? No, not at all. That was part of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. They mm-hmm. have oversight over that. There's, so there's two components to the Privacy Act. There's one that's external, so oversight of companies, and that's HIPAA, and that's overseen by Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada. And then Some of my colleagues in Treasury Board Secretariat, where I used to work, do have the Privacy Act, oversight of the Privacy Act policy, and they work closely with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. So earlier on, through some of the work that we had done, helped to inform that, I had responded to the public consultation that they had done. So I hope that that's, uh, (laughs) along with other people's comments, contributed to it. So... But no, not I'm not involved in that. Not involved directly, but always part of the conversation. Ashley Casman. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Ashley, any last topics that maybe you wanted to bring up or, or any notes sort of for the general public? What else do we need to know or you know what what's coming up? Any any other important advancements that we should know about or maybe even any opportunities for for us to join the conversation as well? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. I think for me, just being more aware of your surroundings and how I, I mentioned earlier the definition of AI. I like to think of AI in the broadest sense. And so I'm actually just in general concerned about technology. And I say concerned because I think that there's just a lot that's happening that we're not really aware of. And you mentioned the city of Toronto before. It was an interesting public discussion that occurred with all of the Waterfront Toronto stuff and not to go into it in any degree of detail here, but I, on one hand, am super, super happy that there are people that are advocating for the public and thinking about the privacy concerns. On the other hand, I am a little sad that it's not proceeding and it's either it's going to set us back as a nation in the ability to have these types of smart cities or it is going to then just be imposed on us when it's normalized elsewhere around the world and we've missed our opportunity to inform that adequately. And that's the thing that I'm more concerned about. So I don't think that we can have these dialogues that are absolutist. I think that they need to be more nuanced. And the only way to have them be more nuanced is for there to be a greater understanding of the implications of these types of technologies. And again, it 
based on what we've talked about today, is just very few examples of monitors in roads for smart cities. They could be anywhere, but just <laughs> monitors and data <laughs> tracking and and all of that to facial recognition systems, tracking and collecting biometric information. Like these are all, or automated hiring, like I said, these are all things that are slowly creeping into every, every aspect of our life. And even like I was mentioning earlier, I think it's concerning when, whether we are implementers of these technologies on behalf of an organization or on behalf of government, or we are just using them in our everyday lives, not really understanding the implications of those. I think it's those like small cuts that we kind of accept really quickly in a terms of service agreement, or we're like, okay, yeah, this seems like a fine trade-off for me because this is a fun application to use, or it's easier for me to use. These are all things that I think slowly, if not done in a concerted way, can cause adverse income uh, outcomes, sorry, and impacting especially vulnerable populations that concerns me. So greater awareness of, of all of this work and just really thinking about what those implications are, I think is what I would love to leave people with. Yeah, I think so much of that rings true. Some of the conversation often seems to seems to need to come down to, you know, such basic principles as like consent <laughs> of those who are governed or you know, whoever, whoever's using a product or service. And and I don't consider, you know, signing those T's and C's to be informed consent. Like they are not designed to be consumable and, and like very intentionally not. No. And it's more of a liability concept rather than a, than a consent document. And so I hope that there's a dramatic transformation there. Um, we actually just interviewed Melissa Karchanakis, who you may be familiar with, but she uh, was our most recent episode and, and sort of runs an organization called ScriptSwap. Um, and they do a lot of AI powered, effectively like language simplification so that, you know, maybe something like that could be more accessible and, and understandable. And so I, I I believe that that's a huge part of the conversation of, you know, making this more comprehensible so that there is sort of the consent of those governed. We don't want to be unwitting subjects in some sort of grand AI experiment or even in our cities without really knowing what's, what's going on. And hopefully that uh, AI can be incredibly compatible with democracy if uh, we develop it right. Yeah, we're working with Joe Toscano. He was featured in the Social Dilemma documentary and wow. has this company called Beacon AI. And they are creating a template. I'm probably explaining this wrong. I'm sorry, Joe. But a template really for, <laughs> for privacy documentation. And not only... I think is that an important thing because it's basically setting this standard for these T's and C's and it's not so much the consent piece of it only that they have, but just like for companies to be able to display like what it is that they're collecting. So that is fascinating. The other thing though, that I find more interesting is how they're making that. So they're taking a data informed approach to building them. And so not only is it being used to find best practices, but where there are the most amount of potential errors or harms. So I think that these are the types of projects and potential products to be able to be followed that will help set a better, not just user experience, but user outcome for people. So many points, so many things to discuss today, Ashley. <laughs> I feel like we can go forever. I know we've just run out of time. Uh, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This is great that you're doing it. Oh, you're so welcome. And, and thanks as always as well to our sponsors, Microsoft Canada and to Cinchi 
Please remember to send us any of your questions, feedback, and community news to info at askai.org. I'm your host, Jackson Kahn. Thank you again so much to Ashley and to all of our listeners for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Ask AI podcast. The executive producer was Chris McClellan. Additional production support was provided by Olina Mack and Kristen Riddell. To learn more about our webinar and chatbot projects and get information about sponsorships and volunteering, please visit our website at askai.org or email info at askai.org. Listeners can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Just search Ask AI.